Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Michael Cox, or Mick Cox, um, the LSE in the International Relations Department, and one of the co-directors of uh, the centre here called Ideas, which I co-direct with my colleague and good friend, uh, Professor Arnie Westad. Welcome to you all tonight, and an especially warm welcome to Professor Neil Ferguson, the holder of the Philippe Roman Chair here at the LSE in the center. Ideas. Neil, as you may know, is the fourth holder of, the, of this particular chair. The first, just to give you a little bit of background, was Paul Kennedy, uh, one of the best-known public intellectuals in the world today. Uh, the second holder of the chair was Professor Chen Zhen, probably the greatest historian of China in the Cold War. And the third, uh, Gilles Capel, the internationally uh, renowned French expert on Islam. Uh, made possible by a very generous uh, donation by Emmanuel Roman, the chair, uh, named after his father, has, as you can see, brought really world-class scholars to the LSE. Uh, but I should add, but not of the uh, reclusive or retiring variety, as you will discover tonight. Neil, of course, is one of those academics whom other scholars over the age of 55 find especially difficult to deal with. Not only is he a mere slip of a boy, but people actually know who he is. They've heard of him, a rare feat for most academics. Now, one reason for Neil's fame, of course, is his extraordinary output over the last 15 years. But I hasten to add, Neil, there's something else too. Uh, he is a controversialist in the very best sense of the word. I think Neil himself would be the first to admit that like any good Scot, he loves a good scrap. Scraps that have involved him over the years in debates about the error that was World War I, the importance of doing virtual or counterfactual history, an attack on E.H. Carr, the positive role played by the British Empire in the creation of the modern world, think about that one, the failure of the United States to own up to the fact that it is indeed an empire, and more recently about whether, as he now seems to believe, the West is in decline and will gradually be replaced by a rising East. And all this before he turned his fire on Paul Krugman. Poor Paul. In his first lecture in this series, Neil took an old problem, the old problem being the end of the Cold War, and typically threw new light on the very complex part played in this least expected of events, the end of the Cold War, by political economy in general, by the great political shifts that brought us the liberal economic revolution of the 1980s, and of course, by the impact of Asia. Tonight, he remains with the Cold War, but looks at it from another angle, how it was experienced, fought, and finally brought to an end in a part of the world that contained most of humanity, all of its serious revolutions after 1945, and as a result, suffered the most, namely the Third World. Neil, thanks again for doing us the honor of being here at the LSE. It is wonderful having you around, and we're all very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say tonight in your second ideas lecture entitled, The Third World's War. LSE, please welcome Neil Ferguson.
Well, thank you very much indeed, Mick. It's a great pleasure to be here again. I was reading a newspaper on my way here, uh, which claimed uh, that I am rarely seen on the campus of the London School of Economics. It's rather unfortunate timing for the authors of that piece, since I have just come from a two-hour panel discussion on the First World War. I'm about to give my second public lecture, and tomorrow I will be lecturing on the scramble for Africa uh, in a history course uh, on the history of the British Empire. This article also uh, managed to inflate my, my salary by a factor of more than five. I can assure you if I was being as well paid as the beaver believes, uh, I would long ago have been torn limb from limb by other members of the LSE faculty. So this is a nice opportunity to set uh, the record straight. One reason that I have been keeping a somewhat low profile over the past couple of weeks has been that I'm trying to finish a book. Anybody who's ever written a book will know that this is not a collective endeavor to which you invite people as if to a dinner party. Uh, this book was in fact due in the hands of my publisher on Monday. So I'm feeling a little tense. Nevertheless, here I am. And what I want to uh, do this evening is to develop an argument that I made in a book entitled uh, The War of the World, uh, World Singular, uh, which was published in 2006. And it's an argument about the nature of the Cold War, how cold it actually was. Uh, and I hope you'll see that it follows, uh, if you were here at my last lecture, somewhat logically from uh, the earlier lecture on the political economy of the Cold War. The phrase, the Third World's War, I think I coined. At least nobody has yet written me an irate letter accusing me of having stolen it from them. And the phrase is designed uh, to play on the idea that there was, in fact, a world war after World War II. But it didn't happen in the places that the previous world wars had happened. It happened in what was then called, but we no longer call, the Third World. And so in the conclusion of, of the book, War of the World, I had a kind of, of epilogue reflecting on this Third World's war, which was really a down payment on a future project. One reason that I'm delivering lectures on this subject, uh, about which I've published relatively little, is that my principal concern while I am here at LSE is to begin writing uh, the biography of Henry Kissinger which I've been researching assiduously for the last four years. And in order to begin uh, writing that book, I need above all else to get my framework right, to understand as well as I possibly can the context within which he lived his life and made his contribution, uh, for better or worse, to American foreign policy. And that takes me to some unusual places, to Guatemala, for example. 
This picture, which appeared in The War of the World, uh, shows some soldiers uh, being trained to fight against uh, the so-called guerrilla army of the poor, uh, which was seen as a pro-communist army by the, uh, the right-wing regime that had come into part uh, in Guatemala uh, in the uh, 1950s, but which had become uh, particularly hostile towards uh, the left within in the later 1960s. The war that was waged in Guatemala was an especially bloody war that continued on into the 1980s with a much higher death toll than I suspect anybody here is aware of. What is important about the war in Guatemala is its location and its timing. And also, as you can tell from this photograph, the relatively primitive military technology with which it was waged. It's wars like these that historians of the Cold War with a few honorable exceptions that I'll mention, not least LSE's own Arne Westad, have neglected. And by neglecting the Third World's War, they have massively understated the magnitude of the human calamity that the Cold War produced. In an essay published in 1986, while of course the Cold War showed no sign of ending, uh, my good friend uh, John Gaddis uh, of Yale University, which I believe is somewhere in Connecticut, wrote as follows. It is the case that the post-World War II system of international relations, which nobody designed or even thought could last for very long, which was based not upon the dictates of morality and justice, but rather upon an arbitrary and strikingly artificial division of the world into spheres of influence, and which incorporated within it some of the most bitter and persistent antagonisms uh, of the uh, 20th century, of the short war in modern history, survived twice as long uh, as the far more carefully designed World War I settlement. This is really the key passage uh, in what later became uh, a book of essays entitled The Long Peace. In the essay, uh, Gaddis makes the argument that the, there was no Third World War, that there was a long peace after 1945, because, as he puts it, using the language of systems theory, the Cold War was a self-regulating system, which was always highly unlikely to go critical the reasons that he advances for this are sevenfold. First, he argues that the Cold War, because of its bipolar character, was more stable than previous international orders. In particular, he has in mind a comparison with the period after 1918, uh, where a multipolar world proved to be highly unstable and no self-regulating system established itself. Not only did the bipolar order correspond to the realities of military and economic power in the post-war uh, period, but it was simple. And its very simplicity, he suggests, was one reason for its stability. The Soviet Union and the United States were not interdependent, but rather independent of one another. They had, historically, before 
and during the Cold War, relatively little contact with one another. And this, Gaddis points out cleverly, flies in the face of an entire body of liberal theory going right back to the 18th century, which posits that it is through contact, uh, through intercourse, that peace between powers is likely to be maintained. On the contrary, Gaddis says, most conflict arises where countries have too much to do with one another. And one of the benefits of the Cold War system was that the two potential antagonists, in fact, were relatively separated. The third reason Gaddis gives for the fact that there was no Third World War is that there were domestic constraints uh, in position, in place, in both of the superpowers that lowered the probability of their taking hostile uh, action. The United States had, long before the advent of the Cold War, developed a theory uh, variously known as the open door policy of, uh, of how it could uh, informally uh, export its uh, culture but above all its capital and establish a kind of de facto empire in all but name without violence. The whole theory of the open door and what later evolved during the Cold War was precisely to export American institutions, to engage in American economic activity without the need for major conflicts. Charles Mayer, my colleague at Harvard, wrote, in my view, the best essay uh, on post-war peace, uh, which compared 1918 and 1945, and argued that it was the corporatist institutions of the United States exported to Western Europe, and indeed, as I argued last time, to Asia, that created that peace which had been so absent in the interwar period. Gaddis adds that from the Soviet point of view too, the appetite for risk in foreign policy had been massively reduced by the traumatic experience of total war and near defeat at the hands of Nazi Germany. Despite their bluster, he suggests, the Soviet leaders really had no desire to get into a hot war. In that sense, both of the superpowers were inwardly constrained. The fourth and most obvious reason why there wasn't a hot war in Gaddis's uh, argument is that deterrence really worked. Uh, in a nuclear age, paranoia and prudence can coexist, he says. And I think if we were to have a quick uh, vote on this question, uh, a majority of you would probably say that the reason the Cold War did not become a hot war was precisely that nuclear arms existed. And had they existed in 1914, uh, or for that matter in 1939, there would have been far less appetite for risk, particularly on the part of the leaders of Germany. So, deterrence. Gaddis adds a, a fifth and interesting argument. When he says that the reconnaissance revolution, and particularly the advent of, of satellites but also spy planes, reduced that uncertainty which had characterized superpower or great power relations in the first half of the 20th century. They knew much more about what one another were doing than had been true of the great powers in the 1930s, much less in the 1910s. And that knowledge reduced the risk of misunderstanding. Uh, misunderstanding, of course, persisted, but the striking thing about the Cold War is how much the two sides knew about the other's movements. And those actions, those movements, may have been misinterpreted, but the fact that they were known, Gaddis suggests, made the world a less dangerous place than it had been before. The sixth reason he says there was no Third World War 
is that there was in fact a, a distinct stepping down in the aspirations of the superpowers after 1945. The notion of fighting a totalitarian state until it surrendered unconditionally was in fact dropped from the menu of American foreign policy, having been the organizing principle of the war that the United States had waged after Pearl Harbor. And that meant that ideological moderation on the United States uh, side, but also on the Soviet side, meant that the stakes were significantly lower than they had been between 1941 and 1945. Finally, he argues, the Cold War's self-regulating system had rules they weren't written down, there wasn't a rule book, but they were kind of understood. Both sides respected the other's spheres of influence. They tried to avoid direct confrontation. They certainly had no great hunger to use nuclear weapons. They accepted weird and wonderful anomalies like Cuba, a Soviet satellite just off the coast of Florida with, weirdly, an American base there at Guantanamo Bay, which exists to this day. Anomalies like West Berlin, a little tiny zone of Western influence in the very heart uh, of the Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe. Above all else, they sought uh, to stabilize implicitly one another by not trying very hard to destabilize one another's regimes. Uh, regime change was not really an integral part uh, of policy on either side, Gaddis suggests. Now, there are many ways with which I could disagree with Gaddis's essay. In the War of the World, I argued that the risk of a nuclear war was much higher than his point four implies, and that in many ways we owe it more to luck than design that there was not a hot war. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 is only the most famous moment when the great powers came, the superpowers came very close to the brink uh, of Armageddon. And one of the great dangers, it seems to me, in writing the history uh, of any conflict or any period of peace is this post hoc propter hoc problem. Just because there wasn't a nuclear exchange between the superpowers doesn't mean the probability was really low. I believe the probability was, in fact, quite high and that there is ample evidence that military and non-military theorists, including, it should be said, Henry Kissinger himself, made the argument for the limited use of nuclear weapons on numerous occasions. In the 1950s, in particular, the temptation was very strong for the United States to contemplate exercising the nuclear option when it was still clearly far ahead of the Soviet Union in the nuclear arms race. But that is not the argument that I want to make tonight. Uh, I could also make a more general argument about probabilities of war. There's some fantastic work uh, that dates back uh, to work by Lewis Richardson, actually a, a meteorologist who, after he had uh, left the field of, uh, of atmospheric physics, devoted his retirement to studying the statistical incidence of conflict. Uh, Richardson's statistics of deadly quarrels is a very wonderful thing to read. One of the things that he points out is that the uh, probability distribution of conflicts is highly abnormal. So much so that it in fact follows a, a Poisson distribution and in, a, in effect has a random character. It's extremely hard, he concluded, to say anything at all about the probability of war 
on the basis of past data. And he gathered vast quantities of data about conflicts of every size uh, between 1815 uh, and 1945. He and others uh, who thought about the statistics of war discovered something very disconcerting. War is random. There is no trend. You only need to look at the anomaly of the, the world wars to see that. Up until 1914, the world appeared to be moving in the direction of less war, more peace, fewer, smaller peripheral wars, no great conflicts between the great powers. Uh, if you had, as of course Norman Angel did on the eve of the First World War, tried to conclude from the past that there was a trend in the direction of peace, you looked like a complete idiot within just a few years as the two biggest conflicts in all recorded history exploded into life. The fact that there is no statistical uh, uh, pattern in the incidence of war, that it is entirely random, makes it highly implausible to me that we can describe the Cold War in Gaddis's terms. The, the, the likelihood that there would be, in other words, another massive conflict uh, in the second half of the 20th century uh, was higher than Gaddis implies, uh, although not something to which anybody could attach a probability. To be absolutely uh, nerdy about it, wars follow a power law distribution, like forest fires and earthquakes. That makes it, it literally impossible to predict uh, their magnitude and timing. So the notion that there was some kind of low probability of a third world war is, I think, logically indefensible. But that's not what I'm going to say tonight. Gaddis lists 15 crises that failed to produce a war and concludes from this, as I have said, that the Cold War was a, a stable system. But you know what? I could list 15 crises that didn't produce a war between 1900 and 1913. And then along came a crisis that produced a world war. As I speak, an American uh, battle uh, group, uh, an aircraft carrier uh, and associated uh, vessels uh, are cruising towards the Yellow Sea in response to a bizarre act of aggression by the rogue state of North Korea against America's South Korean ally. Who of us knows whether this will be just another little local difficulty uh, on the Korean peninsula or the origins of another world war? None of us. The lesson of history is that it could be either and we have no way of attaching a probability. All I can tell you is that uh, as I was preparing to come here, I checked the Financial Times, my paper of choice, and its report is that Beijing is registering its uh, alarm at the American response to North Korea's aggression. So the fact that there were 15 crises and no world war between 1946 and 1983 tells us precisely nothing about the probability of a third world war. Nothing. Well, my friend and colleague, Arne Westad, I think, uh, was the first scholar fully to grasp the biggest flaw in the Gaddis' long 
peace argument. In his seminal book, The Global Cold War, uh, Professor Westad argues, and I quote, the Cold War was a continuation of colonialism through slightly different means. You will all, of course, get the allusion to Clausewitz in that line. Superpower interventions helped put a number of third world countries in a state of semi-permanent civil war against the peasantry. The realization which any reader of this wonderful book has that there was in fact a great deal of war during the long peace is really very powerful indeed. Not only that, but one realizes the nature of the war that was being waged, its location in the third world, and its character as a continuation uh, of the wars of the colonial era. This seems to me to be the most important insight of this, of this excellent book, that it was the peasantry of the third world that were the problem in the eyes of both these strange anti-imperial empires. At the heart of the Cold War, and this was an argument that I made in Colossus, published uh, in 2004, was a massive paradox. Two giant empires, both proclaiming their hostility to imperialism, behaved exactly as empires had previously behaved, in precisely the same places, in the case, say, of Indochina, or in the case, uh, say, of Angola. So one way of thinking about Gaddis's argument as flawed is not to focus, as I did a moment ago, on the probability of a nuclear war, uh, but to look at the reality, the actuality, of a non-nuclear series of pretty low-grade conventional wars, often but not always civil wars, waged by de facto empires against third world peasants. In the War of the World, I made a, a similar argument, though there I tried to emphasize the character of ethnic conflict that was such a distinctive feature of the Third World's War. The real and bloody Third World War, War was in fact fought in the Third World itself, where the strategic stakes, though not the human costs, were lower. One of the really fascinating things about the conflicts I'm going to talk about is that they were, at some level, ideological conflicts between elites often aligned with the capitalist West and peasantries often aligned uh, with the communist East. But they were also, on closer inspection, often continuations of ethnic conflicts which predated the Cold War and, guess what, continued after the Cold War ended. I began with uh, Guatemala, a, a lovely country, but one with an almost oppressive sadness about it, as I found when I visited it uh, about five years ago. What went on in Guatemala, and it really uh, can be said to have begun in the 50s with the overthrow of the Arbenz regime, but didn't get, as it were, momentum until the late 60s, was nominally the Cold War being played out uh, in a small uh, Latin American country. But in practice, it was a civil war between Ladino Latifundista, the people who owned the vast uh, estates, uh, 
and predominantly Mayan peasants. It was an ethnic conflict, and that ethnic conflict is still visible if you visit uh, Guatemala today. Uh, visible not only in physiognomies but also in the clothes that people wear. We don't exactly know how many people disappeared because disappearance was not uh, peculiar uh, to Argentina and Chile uh, in Guatemala but it was a large number. Since the Civil War ended an extensive effort has been made uh, by the Guatemalan authorities to arrive at some approximate uh, death toll and to recognize the victims. Huge multi-volume studies have been produced. The total death toll was in the region of 200,000 people, and it is a relatively small country. What happened uh, in East Pakistan before it became Bangladesh in 1971 is part of the same story. Muhammad Ayub Khan essentially waged a genocidal war as he put it he wanted to prevent the secession uh, of East Pakistan uh, from West Pakistan by quote reducing this majority into a minority we're all of course familiar uh, with the story of what happened in Cambodia but no movie can quite prepare you for the reality of uh, what you see if you visit that country and visit memorials to the victims of the Khmer Rouge, uh, surely the most uh, ghastly uh, and murderous regime of the entire Cold War period, with a, an estimated number of victims somewhere between one and a half and, and two million people. In the uh, War of the World, I try to uh, show how this apparently extreme uh, version, this uh, hyper-Marxist regime in practice also pursued genocidal policies. Uh, disproportionately the ethnic minorities uh, were victims of uh, Pol Pot's uh, uh, genocidal policies which were authentically genocidal for those uh, Cambodian ethnic minorities. And then there's Angola. One of the biggest and longest of all the civil wars waged during the Cold War. The Battle of Quito Cuanavale is a fascinating event. Africa's Stalingrad, well that's perhaps putting it a bit strongly, but certainly the biggest conventional battle that was fought uh, in Africa, perhaps anywhere, in the Cold War period. What happened near the Namibian border with Angola was a huge and wonderfully characteristic uh, encounter uh, between the Angolan uh, government's forces and those uh, of the rebel UNITA. Uh, and the, the Angolan government was a force uh, not only with Soviet manufactured equipment but with a very substantial Cuban presence. Uh, there are all kinds of extraordinary pictures of Cubans uh, at, this, at this battle. And it was Castro, more really than uh, anyone in Moscow, who willed uh, the intervention in Angola that took place. The other side had a substantial number, at least 3,000 uh, South Africans uh, fighting for them. And this battle was in some ways a perfect illustration of how the Third World's War was fought. A war of proxies. 
and even proxies of proxies. And how else to understand the phenomenon of uh, Angolans fighting Angolans in Soviet manufactured uh, tanks with Cuban crews? This was the real Cold War. And if you think that's cold, you have a very different notion of temperature from me. And so on. The litany of tragedy goes. Kurdistan, 1988, can be, I think, understood as part uh, of the same story. We all uh, were reminded over and over again of the extent to which uh, Saddam Hussein became an American client, had meetings much photographed with Donald Rumsfeld, and used American military aid to conduct a genocidal war uh, against uh, the Kurdish people, using notoriously poison gas to wipe out whole villages. Cold? A long peace? I think not. So how peaceful was the Cold War, really? Well, not very. Some of the biggest conflicts of the Cold War era are listed here, the biggest being the Korean War. But there were very large wars that I haven't even mentioned, for example, the Civil War uh, in Sudan. So it's obvious, prima facie obvious, that the long peace was not very peaceful for a very substantial part of the world's population. It's only a long peace if you talk exclusively about relations between the superpowers and their closest allies. One thing is very clear. The first half of the 20th century was more violent than the second half. That much we have to concede to John Gaddis. Here are the numbers taken from the great uh, University of Michigan Correlates of War project. Uh, if you just add up all the different kinds of wars, interstate, extrastate, as they call them, which is, uh, is really a fancy word for colonial war, and intrastate, which is civil war, add them up uh, and look at estimated battle deaths. And I think the figures for 1900 to 49 are on the, on the low side, frankly. Uh, even with conservative estimates for the World War's uh, casualty list, you have a, a, a difference of a factor of, of three. But when you look at the duration of wars, a very different story emerges. In the second half of the 20th century, uh, wars lasted, on average, a whole lot longer than the big wars of the first half. Uh, of the 20th century. Uh, these are average durations of war um, in days. And you can see that the average uh, second half of the 20th century war lasted a whole lot longer than the average first half. And so it goes on. There were many more wars too. Uh, and so one of the striking features of the Cold War, or perhaps to be more precise, of the second half of the 20th century, is that there are more, longer, but smaller wars than in the first half of the 20th century. And that seems to characterize rather nicely the difference between the two eras. Well, would the violence have happened anyway? That's the obvious question you have to ask. And like the last discussion about the First World War 
participated in, you'll see at once that you have to ask a counterfactual question to understand the phenomenon uh, that you're discussing. Would the conflicts that I'm talking about have happened anyway? And is it an illusion to interpret them as proxy wars in the Cold War? We have to ask that question, otherwise we're going to find ourselves very far up the creek without a paddle. To be precise, how big a contribution did the superpowers make in fermenting the many long, small wars of post-1949 and prolonging them? That really seems to me uh, to be the key question. The answer is a lot. It's not plausible, in my view, that all this stuff would have happened anyway, even if uh, Roosevelt and Stalin had lived into the 1980s, the best of friends, uh, with zero conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. The counterfactual that it was just going to happen that way in the third world, I don't find plausible. Because uh, the Soviets did so much, and here's the evidence, starting with the authorization uh, to the North Koreans to invade Korea, through the Cuban Revolution, through the Vietnam War, through Angola and Mozambique, the Soviets consciously sought uh, to pursue uh, opportunities when they presented themselves uh, in third world countries. And even when they didn't, the Americans thought they were doing it. That's the real significance of the story in Guatemala uh, and, of course, the story in Chile, which, as you can well imagine, will form a very important chapter of my Kissinger biography. The Soviets thought, this is a great line from the Mitrokin archive, the world was going our way, and they were right. Peasant revolts were happening all over the decolonizing world. And these peasant revolts clearly were more favorable to the communist power than to the capitalist power. The Americans were presented with unpalatable bedfellows at every turn. Massive estate owners, generals, not terribly nice people, to put it mildly. But they were the alternative to popular revolts armed with Kalashnikovs, the key weapon, of course, of this era. More important, it turned out, than all the nuclear warheads in all the arsenals. The Americans responded to every threat, real or imagined. They made so many treaties of alliance. They made Neville Chamberlain in 1938-39 look parsimonious. 48 different countries had treaties of alliance with the United States. There were at least 168 instances of American armed intervention between 1946 and 65 alone. And as Arna Westad has pointed out, most of this failed. I said in my last lecture that the things that succeeded succeeded really well and it was crucial that they did but it has to be acknowledged that Taiwan and South Korea uh, are the outliers. Most American military interventions did not produce rapidly growing capitalist economies capable of transitioning to democracy. Why? But why not by so unsuccessful? You see the key question is uh, did the United States intervene too much, as most people assume, because of course they have grown up 
in the shadow of the post-Vietnam uh, uh, critique of American foreign policy, or did the United States, in fact, intervene too little? A shocking proposition that I made in my hugely unpopular book, Colossus, a book that was unpopular on both the left and the right, uh, it should be said, because in pointing out that the United States uh, was uh, an empire, I upset uh, my colleagues and friends on the right, uh, and in pointing out that it could actually have been much more successful as an empire, I deeply upset all my colleagues and friends on the left. One of the interesting things about uh, the US during the Cold War is that after spending a lot of money uh, on waging the Cold War at the time of Korea, uh, in fact the US kind of tapered off its military commitments. That, that's really the crux of Nixon's uh, uh, concept of, of detente and Vietnamization. So although the average of 7.5% of gross domestic product is way higher than anything since the Cold War ended, uh, it's really not uh, an evenly distributed, consistent 7.5%. And when you look at US economic and military aid as a percentage of GDP, the striking thing is how little of it there is. Not how much. It's huge at the time of martial aid, and then it more or less disappears. And yes, the economic aid for most of the Cold War is greater than the military aid. And it also turns out that the military aid goes disproportionately to a relatively few client states. I don't think anybody can claim on the basis of these data that the United States was engaged in massive intervention in other people's quarrels, rather the reverse. Which brings me to Graham Greene. The problem with American foreign policy during the Cold War and after it is beautifully characterized in Greene's novel, The Quiet American. Pyle, who's the loathsome uh, exponent of covert operations, uh, was talking about the old colonial powers. This to the jaded British journalist who is the narrator. Powell was talking about the old colonial powers, England and France, and how you couldn't expect to win the confidence of Asiatics. That was where the American came in now, with clean hands. Hawaii, Puerto Rico, I said, New Mexico. He said there was always a third force to be found, free from communism and the taint of colonialism. National democracy, he called it. You only had to find a leader and keep him safe from the old colonial powers. You have to imagine Michael Caine saying the next bit, because Cain played the part beautifully in the movie that was released with perfect timing on the eve of the invasion of Iraq. I've been in India, pile, <laughs> and I know that harm liberals do. We haven't a liberal party anymore. Liberalism's infected all the other parties. We're all either liberal conservatives or liberal socialists. We all have a good conscience. We go and invade the country. The local tribes support us. We're victorious. But in Burma, we made peace and left our allies to be crucified and sawn in two. They were innocent. They thought we'd stay. But we were liberals and we didn't want a bad conscience. That's the problem.
I do data as well as accents. There's a pretty interesting uh, correlation between the duration of an American occupation and per capita income today. And the problem is that by not staying in the wake of most interventions, the United States consistently failed to achieve its objectives. When it stayed, which of course it did in Japan uh, and in South Korea, uh, it had much more success than when it went in, beat the bad guys, installed the puppet, and then went home with a clear conscience. And that's really the beauty of, of Green's argument. It nails the defect in American strategy, which has persisted after the Cold War to this day, and which we are currently seeing uh, not only in Iraq, but in Afghanistan. When was the Cold War most hot? Because, of course, the Cold War is, is not some homogenous thing. There are phases, distinct phases. Well, you probably think, I'm just guessing, it was in the 1970s. And the reason that you probably think that is that if we had to think of conflicts in the Cold War, nasty conflicts, uh, we'd probably all put Vietnam fairly near the top of our, our list. And the 1970s certainly have a good claim to be considered, at least in terms of violence, the high point of the Cold War. Uh, here, incidentally, is the key chart for the Vietnam War, showing the percentage approval of the war uh, slipping below half uh, on the eve of 1968 as the casualties uh, reached uh, uh, around about the 30,000 mark. Compare that with uh, uh, what happened in Korea when public support remained above 50% right through the time of, of bitterest fighting. Well, there were lots and lots of flashpoints uh, in the 1970s. And I've just listed 13 here, which I'm sure if John Gallus were here, he would point out did not produce the Third World War. But they nevertheless produced a lot of war. Uh, and these Third World's uh, wars are the thing that I'm interested in. Uh, some, like the fall of South Vietnam, are seared on on the memory of anybody who was old enough to watch TV in 1975. Others we scarcely give a thought to, like the revolution in Ethiopia in 1974, the Ogaden War that followed in 1977. Lots of geopolitical crises, lots of heads of state assassinated. The 1970s really were a great time uh, for assassins, and in many ways Richard Nixon was lucky to leave the White House in a helicopter rather than in a box. How much war per decade was there? Well, what's interesting is that when you do the numbers, there does not turn out to be a significant spike uh, in the 1970s. The most you can say is that there was slightly more war in the 1970s than in the 50s, 60s, or 80s, and slightly more deaths due to war relative to the world's population. If you just look at the second table, the far right column, you'll see that the magnitude of battle-related death goes up a tiny, tiny bit uh, in the 1970s relative to global population, but you can't actually claim that there was a spike. The reality about the Cold War is that, in fact, there was a pretty consistent level of third world violence right the way from the beginning to the end. What's more, 
certain forms of uh, violence uh, grew over time and reached a peak after the Cold War. Terrorism being the obvious example. Scarcely any international terrorism happened prior to the 1970s. More happened in the 1990s uh, and more recently than even in the 1980s. Coup d'etat, by contrast, follow the pattern of the earlier slides. There's not really more instability, or at least only slightly more, in the 70s uh, than in the 1960s, and there are more coups in the 1980s than the 1970s. I want to uh, conclude by offering you a brief explanation of why we tend to exaggerate how bad the 70s were. Uh, and, and why it is that we have a mental image of the 1970s as the decade of malaise and disaster and helicopters lifting people off embassy roofs. I think the answer is that there was a war within. And the war within the two superpower blocs really had its climax in the 1970s, though it began in 1968 or thereabouts. And this is also true of China, incidentally. It's not often that we think of them in the same uh, breath, but what happened in Prague in 1968 when the Soviets crushed uh, the Prague Spring and what happened in Chicago uh, have some uh, common features. In both cases, and there are many more I could cite, it was students who were having their heads bashed in uh, by working class people. Uh, either in uniform uh, as policemen or, or soldiers. Now, and this is actually a characteristic uh, feature of the late 60s and the early 1970s within the superpower core. Here I'm not talking about the Third World's War. I'm talking about the wars within that really broke out in 1968. They happened because uh, of a strange generational quirk that we know as the baby boom. The population aged between 15 and 24 uh, as a share of total population reached a great peak in the 1970s. Uh, this is especially true in North America, but not uniquely so, as you can see from this chart. In fact, the percentage of people in that age group was even larger uh, in South America. And this produces a particular form uh, of internal crisis within the core uh, of the Cold War system, which broadly takes the, the place of, takes the form of generational conflict here of the US data just to illustrate it. What also happens, and this is highly relevant to the London School of Economics undergraduates, what also happens is that people like you grow massively as a percentage of the population uh, in all developed countries. There's a huge expansion of higher education. Here's 1928 and 1968 compared. Uh, it's university students as a percentage of the population. As you can see, in 1928, actually hardly anybody went to university. The shares had massively increased by 1968, though by our standards, they're still actually amazingly low. The 68ers are a super elite. That's, of course, why the policemen liked beating them up. Class war can take many different forms. Uh, and the form it took in 1968 was working class cops beating the crap out of privileged students who dodged the draft while the cops' brothers were out in Vietnam. Nowhere was this more true than in the United States, which was the first society massively to expand higher education. And that's why the campuses explode in the United States more than anywhere else. There never had been so many people in college as there were in the United States in 1968, anywhere, in any society at any time. That, I think, is why we have a peculiar view of the Cold War. 
It's a view formed on the campuses in the late 1960s and early 1970s. A view formed by students like the ones who, at this institution and elsewhere, organized their generational conflict into an anti-war process that focused principally but not exclusively on the war in Vietnam. I want to try and uh, suggest to you, oh, and incidentally, uh, the crisis took the form not just of riots on campuses, but also took the form of a great crime wave. Uh, and this crime wave, of course, is, uh, is another kind of violence, very different from war, but a kind of violence that makes many people un uneasy. Watch these crime rates, by the way, in the wake of the Great Recession. The number of armed robberies on the Harvard campus this semester, uh, I think, must be equal to all the armed robberies of the previous decade put together. I think I may stay here just to, to, to be safe, actually, Mick. That makes me feel much better. Final thought. Was there a post-war peace dividend? That's kind of crucial. Uh, if I'm right, and the Cold War did matter, and these wars wouldn't have happened quite as they did without the Cold War, then there should have been a peace dividend when the Cold War ended. There was, but not everywhere. If you look at percentage changes in real inflation-adjusted defense spending, the biggest peace dividend was in Europe, which basically demilitarized itself. Then came the Americas, and then Africa. But in the Middle East, and even more so in Asia, there was no peace dividend. On the contrary, military expenditure increased, and substantially by a quarter in the case of Asia, when the Cold War had ended. And that brings me to a conclusion. I think we can see from this evidence why we think of the Cold War as either a long peace between uh, the superpowers or a kind of generational existential crisis that culminated in 1975 with the fall of South Vietnam. We think of it that way because our understanding of the Cold War is basically the product of the generation of 68 and their peculiar preoccupations have skewed our understanding of what happened. It's the baby boomers who write the history folks. And that's why you actually need youthful figures like me to revise their views. I wish I really were youthful. What's clear, I think, also, is that the Cold War did increase the amount and the duration of conflict in some parts of the world. I think Africa and I think also Latin America. But I don't think we can credibly blame the Cold War for the violence in Asia and the violence in the Middle East. My conclusion is that those wars, those parts of the Third World's War, would probably have happened anyway. Thank you very much. Neil, are you going to take questions? Yes, from, please. Yeah, no I'll problem just stand at all. Here. I, I, the, only, the only order I'm going to give Neil is if he could answer all the questions with a Michael Caine accent. Because that, other that accents, got a spontaneous you know. applause. <laughs> so the first question I want to ask you, uh, Neil, is the following. Your, yours is much better than mine. And I'll, I'll, I'll open it up and then take, uh, take questions from the floor. Um, 
the argument you put forward uh, against poor John Gaddis, uh, who, who suffered as much as Paul Crookman has suffered at your hands, it seemed to me, this evening, but won't go there. But it seemed to me what you're arguing, uh, or you didn't draw out the conclusion as the following, that in some ways or another there were certain massive uh, political, socio-economic advantages for what you might call the, the broader left in the third world, uh, which of course raises a, the obvious rather simplistic question about uh, why they lost in the end, if indeed they did lose, because that's a larger question, because there's some questions about the Vietnamese Communist Party still being in power and what's going on. In... But the larger question is about the question of uncertainty. I want to bring you into a bit more. This kind of, you, you don't know until, until the fat lady sings, you don't quite know what the outcome is going to be until the outcome happens. And for some odd reason, I was reading Lee Kuan Yew's memoirs the other day, which was rather good. And he said in the middle of, of his second volume on this, he said, it was far from clear which side would win. And he was talking of the 60s and the, and the 70s. And I'd like to tease that one out on you, on the question of uncertainty principle. Yeah. Was there a tipping point, or did we never have a tipping point? And did, could we ever predict at any point which of the two, or three sides, or four sides, but take the two, would actually win? Start with that one, and then open it up to... Uh, the, if people could start indicating with their hands, uh, and also please leave quiet. Neil, over to you. Thanks, Mick. That's, that's a great question, actually, because what I'm seeing in, in, in response to John Gaddis is that it wasn't uh, a stable system at all. Mm. It was a complex adaptive system on the edge of chaos, uh, and, and that's really how we should understand uh, the, the Cold War, and probably how we should understand most international quote-unquote orders, and probably how we should understand most political organizations from the city-state all the way up uh, to the empire. Uh, it, it's only an illusion that they're in equilibrium. They're actually complex systems in which there's constant adaptation by the component parts, and they are on the edge of chaos. This is an argument I made in a an essay in Foreign Affairs earlier this year to try and give an insight into why when something collapses, when a, an empire collapses, it happens really fast, really suddenly. Uh, and, and it's surprising. And then once it's happened, these people called historians arrive <laughs> on the scene mm. and they say, ah, well this great calamity had deep roots stretching back many decades. These deep roots that only historians can see because contemporaries at the time were completely unaware of them. Uh, and that makes me more and more suspicious actually of the traditional historical method. Something happens in the tale of the distribution, a revolution, an empire collapses, a massive war breaks out. Uh, to contemporaries it's nearly always a total surprise. And then the historians turn up and say, ah, mm. here are the causes of they the war. I don't think that's actually how the historical process works at all. I think if you understand most historical uh, events as, as, as complex systems tipping over the edge of chaos, like earthquakes, like forest fires, historical fat tail events, like wars, are not predictable. They are, in fact, randomly distributed. And this is really troubling for most historians. If, if any traditional historians start to weep at this point, a strong drink is needed. You have to recognize that our elaborate chains of causation are just stories. They really don't explain anything. Because these collapses uh, into disorder uh, are in fact not determined by stories. 
they're determined when a tiny, tiny perturbation tips the complex system over the edge of chaos. And that's why you don't need an enormous theory of the causes of the First World War. All you need to recognize is that Princip's bullets were the perturbation that tipped the 1914 order over the edge of chaos. Everything else, Tirpitz's navy, forget about it. Innocent, not relevant. And the Cold War, it seems to me, is very like this too. The end of the Cold War is caused by Mikhail Gorbachev. That's it. What he does when he quite randomly becomes uh, the leader in charge of the Soviet Union as a result of two deaths, what he does is the perturbation that tips the Soviet empire over the edge. There's really nothing much else to explain because it is a highly, highly fragile edifice. Nobody, even writing in 1986, as Gaddis was, nobody anticipated that I'm aware of that Gorbachev's reforms would cause the disintegration not just of the Soviet Empire, but the Soviet Union itself within five years. So we're dealing here with something very, very startling about the historical process, which is that very large events can have very trivial or relatively small causes. That really upsets us because we have, as human beings, an evolved predisposition to tell stories about bad stuff. When something traumatic happens, we, we have to have a story. This will be true of you the next time you crash your car. You'll tell some elaborate story to your spouse mm. about <laughs> why it happened. Mm. But you just basically miscalculated mm. three seconds before the crash. That's how we should understand the end of the Cold War, as something that was as surprising uh, as any of the major events of the, the 20th century. And it might not have happened then at that time in that way. Mm. But the uncertainty is certainly the key. Most participants in most of the great events we study are deeply uncertain about the future most of the time. And the ones who aren't believe in some mad ideology and should be regarded with great, great skepticism. Particularly if they're part of the boom that I came from. Uh, if you could bring the... Yeah, there's a lady here who had her hand up, please. I, I'm going to take that one. Yeah, please put your hand up, please. Thanks. Please be sharp to the point, please. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually a former Yale undergraduate who studied under Sorry John Sorry about Gattis that. I'll, I'll apologize for Paul him Kennedy. now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, having studied a bit uh, much more modestly than you this period, it seems to me that you neglect the decolonization, this huge... Um, international sort of phenomenon of the second half of the 20th century and I wonder how you can factor that in because to me it seems hugely relevant even more so than the Cold War and all of these third world uh, conflicts that you touch upon. So. I'll, I'll take that one because that's a one that's a one-liner and a second person up in the balcony please yeah 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 that's you yeah you've got the mic yeah please. Hi I'm doing a PhD on the early Cold War uh, period particularly the American interventions in the Global South. So I had a particular question... Can you speak up just a bit, please? Sorry. I had a particular question about your um, use of the words ethnic conflict, when in fact some of those things might be considered to be class, uh, class conflicts which are organised in ethnic constituencies, and I was wondering um, what you had to say about that, particularly the idea of mestizo, indigenous and European descent in Guatemala. Yeah. Okay, two short, sharp questions. Uh, Neil, over to you. Well... Delightful to have a Kennedy-Gaddis uh, 
people among us, please let me emphasize my great respect for <laughs> both those historians. You had to say that. You just had to say that. You know. <laughs> but if you uh, ever read John Gaddis's review of my book Colossus, you'll know that this is payback time. <laughs> you had to say that too. Because <laughs> you see, I should explain something. I come from a, a culture where there is relatively little um, aggression, but a great deal of retaliation. You're so I about tend Scotland, not though. to take the offensive <laughs> until I'm attacked, and then I retaliate with massive force. Okay. <laughs> this also was a part of the thinking in the Cold War. Uh, the game theorists who started to think about uh, the nuclear arms race uh, would play iterated prisoner dilemmas. You probably studied this with, with John and Paul. And the, the strategy that works best is in a great book by a guy called Axelrod is, is tit for tat plus. In tit for tat plus, uh, you never take the initiative by defecting until your counterparty defects. And then you retaliate with double the force of the initial offense. And this is the most successful strategy in the iterated prisoner's dilemma. Decolonization should have been more prominent in that presentation. I think I kind of was implying more than I, uh, I meant to when I quoted uh, Arne Westad's uh, argument that, that it's really the continuation of, of colonialism by other means. Absolutely. That, that's the key to understanding what is going on. Uh, the Cold War uh, and decolonization uh, are often treated as if they're separate subjects and I remember teaching it as a separate as two separate mm. topics at Oxford and having different reading lists mm. until I had to start really thinking about this period when I when I realized that they were in fact two facets of the same process uh, of post-1945 imperial crisis and I think if anything it's the breakdown of the European empires that is actually the the really big story here I mean what is going on in Angola is that last dead twitchings of Portugal's empire. And did I go further to say that the Soviet Union is the last European empire in Asia to go down? And the whole notion of East and West is a total confusion when we talk about the Cold War. It was all the West, including the Soviet Union, which was run by Europeans as much as any empire had been run by Europeans. And it's the last to fall. So as somebody who's primarily a historian of empire rather than of, of of superpowers. I much prefer that perspective. The, the beauty of the, the Graham Greene quotes is that they absolutely nail the point that in the eyes of the British, and even more so in the eyes of the French, remember the great cut scene from Apocalypse Now, which didn't make it into the movie houses, but is the director's cut, where his, there's this extraordinary, have you seen it? No, you should see the unexpurgated Apocalypse Now, the best movie of the entire Cold War. Um, there's a scene when they, Martin Sheen ends up implausibly at dinner with a group of French uh, 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 colonialists, plantation owners. And they have a totally strange and highly didactic conversation about the nature of imperialism. I can kind of see why the studio dropped it, but I love it. Yeah. So the point from both the British and French perspective was that the Americans were essentially entering the empire game or continuing a process that had begun, you know, in 1890, in 1899. The, um, the interesting thing, though, is that there's this hiatus. 
And that's particularly important in the 1950s when rather than simply keeping the British Empire and French Empire going, uh, the Americans let them die. And then they realize somewhere in around about 1958, oh dear, the nationalists are not going to behave themselves and be our friends. In fact, the British and French weren't so bad after all, but too late by that time. When things start to really go, go pear-shaped in, in, in Iraq, for example, uh, I think that's a really critical moment of truth. In a counterfactual policy world, the Americans could have simply from the outset, 1945 onwards, said, these European empires ain't so bad, they're just bankrupt, we'll take them over. Let's not take a chance with these with these nationalists who may turn out either to be uh, friends of the, the Soviets or just crazy. So that's, that's how I would think of this story. That, that it's the continuation of colonialism by other means, but after a hiatus in which the Americans thought that they didn't need colonial structures to maintain their, to maintain their global power. The second question was about how ethnic conflict and, and class conflict uh, interact. Uh, and, and the answer, of course, is that they, they deeply, deeply interact. And one can't really explain one without, without the other. Uh, when I was writing about Guatemala and also trying to understand Cambodia and, and other conflicts where there were substantial death tolls, I spent a lot of time reading some pretty obscure stuff about, about the ethnic dimension because that's so much less, so much less discussed. And that's partly because the theme of War of the World is that ethnic conflict is the thing that really kills people, the thing that really has a much, much, a very high level of, uh, of lethal uh, violence associated with it. Pure class conflict doesn't tend to kill people half so much as when it's got an ethnic, an ethnic dimension. And that's also a Glaswegian insight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll leave you to think about what. Think about that. One, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay. Glasgow is a classic Sorry. illustration where the ethnic politics of religion are really much more powerful than the fact that it's predominantly, you know, working class people who support Celtic and, and, and lower middle class people who support Rangers. That's not really what they chant about on the terraces. Uh, and in the, You're in wrong the about the class composition of Rangers, by the way, but I won't go into that. Uh, there was somebody at the back here who's got their hand up. Can I take that one, please? I'm going to take as many as I can. And if the people with the... And is anybody else? There's a gentleman at the back. He's had his hand up from Thank the very you. beginning. I'll just take two of that. It's okay, Neil? Sure. One and then two. Yeah, so you're two and you're one. Please. Okay. Uh, I'm an writer from a Chinese newspaper. I'm also a postgraduate student here. And I have a question for Professor uh, Ferguson. You concluded that uh, uh, the wars in Asia uh, anyway would happen, uh, no matter there, whether there was a Cold War between the USSR and the United States, but, but other wars in other continents or not. Could you give more uh, specific uh, explanations or okay. more you know, elaborations on that? Thank you. Okay. Sure point. And gentleman here, quickly, please. Thanks. Great talk, Professor Ferguson. Interesting paradigm shift. If we adopt your model that the really? proxy wars <laughs> in decolonization and the Cold War were driven by the superpowers, I see that we can take this in two ways. Then the superpowers must have had core interests at stake. You have to deal with the thesis that, well, the Americans armed to the teeth the Mujahideen so that it would cause the Soviet Union to bust by defense spending. Or were there other interests at stake other than the Star Wars, let's spend them into the grave analysis? I think that, in fact, this disproves the idea that Gorbachev himself caused the 
follow the Soviet Union because they're key interested in the wars of decolonization in the Cold War. Okay, that's good. So you made a paradigm shift. You noticed that. That's good. And uh, we'll do that regularly. Yeah, yeah, very good. Paradigm, paradigm. And um, uh, at the back on Asia. Well, that's a great question. And I think it's, it's kind of something that hit me when I looked at the data. If, if there's no peace dividend, then that implies that there's a potential for conflict that, that the superpowers didn't particularly need to, to inflate. I think that's certainly plausible uh, with respect to Korea and, and Vietnam. I mean, there were civil wars going to happen there uh, at some point in the wake of, of World War II. What the Americans uh, and the Soviets did was to make those wars bigger than they would have been. I think that's fairly obvious. Certainly in the case of, uh, of Korea and Vietnam, it's hard to imagine civil wars in those, in those countries being fought on the scale that they were fought uh, when the United States and its, its allies became involved. So I think that's a qualification that's very important. Uh, the, the fact that there's an arms race in Asia since the end of the Cold War, and it goes on to this day, is one of the, the less well-appreciated facts about Asia in the world today. One has, in fact, to spend a bit of time talking to, I don't know, the Australian Navy to have a sense of just how far a new kind of uh, uh, multipolar world is emerging uh, in, in post-Cold War Asia. Uh, Kissinger actually wrote about this quite soon after the end of the Cold War in a foreign affairs piece in which he argued that, that Asia in the post-Cold War period was coming to resemble Europe in the late 19th century with the combination of strongly uh, antagonistic sovereign states and, and an arms race. And I think recent events in, in Asia bear that analysis out and to me make somewhat absurd any notion that there could be a European-style integration process in which Asian states pool their sovereignty. Every time I hear any, anybody ask about that, I'm very, very skeptical indeed because I don't see any evidence of your country wanting to pool sovereignty in that way, nor, for that matter, to the, the Japanese. So I think there would have been war in Asia, and there may yet be more war in Asia. But what the Cold War did was to make Asian wars bigger than they would have been, if that makes, if that makes sense. Um, the question of, of what the relationship was between American policies, say, in Afghanistan, or, or in anywhere else for that matter, and the collapse of the Soviet Union is, I think, still an open question. I was certainly somebody who, at the time, passionately believed that, uh, that Reagan's uh, arms build-up was a strategy designed to tip the Soviet Union over the edge, and that it worked. But with the clearing of, uh, of the smoke and the passage of time, I've become less and less sure about that, uh, and suspect increasingly that the decisions to reform were actuated not by a sense that the arms race was, was being lost, but, but by more internal uh, considerations. I think that's the gist of Steve Kotkin's re recent work, actually. Uh, so this seems more like an endogenous story than one that, that we can credit 
to Ronald Reagan or, for that matter, the Pope. Incidentally, if you read Gaddis's most recent book on the Cold War, um, uh, he ends up saying that the, the, the Cold War ended because of Ronald Reagan and the Pope, and I, I think Margaret Thatcher gets a walk on par. Um, and I just don't find that a compelling argument, or at least it sounds too much like a certain journalistic story that, that I was prepared to buy in 1989, but you know, it's 2010, and I think, I think we may have a slightly better understanding now of what was, of what was going on. And I do think the internal dynamics in, within the, the, the nomenclatura of the driver, and their reasons, Gorbachev's reasons for risking reform, I think were very distant from the Mujahideen. Okay, uh, I've got a couple. I'm gonna, I want to take a uh, gentleman in the middle, if you could get up without, without falling over the edge. Good. And then I'll take somebody down here. Sorry, I've got, I had other hands up. Uh, uh, young chap, sorry, you are young, aren't you? Yeah. Over right in that. We They're all young. Me. That's not <laughs> Over right in that corner, please. Uh, yeah, if you, just quick yeah, and sorry. very loud. Yeah, I just wondered if you could develop some of your points about the application of a chaos theory to history because, mm. um, you know, in nature, you can get stable systems yeah. and they stay stable for some time and then some event um, makes them chaotic. Couldn't you argue that? Uh, the Cold War went through periods of where it could have become chaotic and it, then it became stable. I mean, I think the most obvious event at the beginning of the Cold War is Stalin's decision to um, uh, allow Kim Il-sung to invade the South, yeah. which was, you know, created a lot of uncertainty. But after that, the system stabilised again. Okay, I'll take that one on chaos theory. A nice methodological question. And chap in the corner there. Yeah, please. Okay. Uh, Luke Smolinski. Um, does the notion of empire clash fundamentally with uh, values of democracy, that people should vote for their own people? And secondly, how long uh, should we stay in Afghanistan till everything's solved? Right, that's... Um, <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you. Uh, right, I think uh, we'll, we'll be here about what? 10.45, I presume. Right, I'll take those as the last two. I mean, a lot of hands have gone up, but we're, we're reaching close to the end, Neil, so I think you deserve a drink as well. So, okay, on those two questions, please. I deserve a drink and an apology from the beaver I'm looking for in the next issue. No, 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 they're fine, fine and upstanding newspaper. <laughs> Empirically driven. I thought that had to do with facts. <laughs> <laughs> the, um... Chaos theory became a hugely important part of my thinking um, when I was writing a book called Virtual History. Uh, and that was uh, back in the, in the early 90s when I was coming to grips with the origins of, of the First World War and, and seeing that most models of causation used by historians, either explicitly or implicitly, were actually philosophically about 100 years out of date. I mean, historians were still in some kind of strange Laplacian universe, and everybody else had left that far behind in other fields. Whether you looked at the philosophy of law or causation in the natural sciences, uh, it was obvious that linearity was, was really rather the exception, particularly in a world of man-made institutions with, with really very high levels of complexity. So I think it's highly relevant here. And since virtual history, I've been doing a lot of work on complexity theory because I do think that that offers really very important insights into the ways in which human institutions function and malfunction. That's true in financial markets, which is where I've done a lot of work recently, and I think it applies 
as well to complex political organizations uh, like superpowers or, or empires. Uh, so I think the, the way I would think about it is that both the Soviet Union and the United States were, as it were, internally complex systems, and they interacted in the Cold War in a way that was, in fact, highly unstable most of the time. And it's really rather amazing, actually, that they didn't end up exchanging uh, nuclear weapons over one of those 13 or 14 issues. To me, the really remarkable thing about the Cold War is not the decision that Stalin took. The remarkable thing is Truman's decision not to use nuclear weapons, which of course is what MacArthur was all set to do with considerable support from other military and strategic thinkers. And it would have been all over if they'd done it. They could have probably overthrown the, the Maoist regime too if they'd wanted to. The really interesting thing about the Cold War is that the United States does not exploit its massive edge in nuclear technology at the beginning. That's the surprising thing. And that brings us, of course, to the final questions, uh, which don't relate terribly directly to my talk, so I'll answer them very briefly. Uh, is the notion of, of empire compatible uh, with uh, democracy? Well, oh, clearly not. Uh, that, that, that it's, it's clear uh, isn't the case. However, what is true is that certain empires uh, in the way that they operated, uh, were actually quite good at establishing the foundations without which democracy can't function. Democracy is a luxury good. You can, in fact, have it and make it work until certain things are already in place, of which the rule of law uh, and particularly private property rights are probably the two most important. And the British Empire was particularly good at creating those institutions, and other empires were very bad at it which is why the fate of countries uh, post the colonial era is heavily dependent on the kind of empires that they had. You stood a much better chance if you were a British colony than if you were a Belgian colony, uh, for fairly obvious reasons. As for Afghanistan, well, it's appropriate perhaps to end on that, since of all the Cold War's uh, surprises, none really uh, was bigger uh, than the events of, of 1979, which I, I think were much more important than the events of 1989. Uh, in 1979, two things changed, that, two things happened that completely changed the game. One was the, the Iranian Revolution, and the other was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which then implicated the Soviets in that new war, the war that Samuel Huntington called the Clash of Civilizations, that would ultimately supplant the Cold War of ideologies. Uh, that war shows very little sign of ending uh, in the foreseeable future, and we can set all the deadlines we like for withdrawing from Afghanistan. Whatever date we choose, and it seems to vary from week to week, Pyle's law still applies, as enunciated by Graham Greene. If you intervene in a country mm -hmm. and then announce your intention to depart, do not be surprised if the institutional foundations of democracy fail to take root. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Before, uh, before you all go and he disappears, I've, I know that Neil is doing two more lectures 
in this series that are £150,000 a time. I think that's pretty, pretty damn good value for money. Sorry about that. But I, 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 Neil has his own titles, but I've got two for you, Neil, just to try. Your, your third lecture will be Michael Caine and the building of the Berlin Wall. And uh, I knew Pope John Paul and John Gaddis, and neither ended the Cold War. Could you speak to that, perhaps? Yes, but next time it'll be in Sean Connery's accent. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.